What's wrong? What's wrong? I'll tell you what's wrong. I'm trying to vote my conscience, and I, 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 I can't even hear it anymore. There is no choice. My only choice is not to vote at all. Democracy is horrible, absolutely horrible. You're so right. Democracy is the worst form of government there is, except for all of the others. No. And that is exactly why you have to vote. No! Yes! No! Yes! If you don't vote, you can't complain. Complaining is all I have left. The system isn't perfect, but it's important to participate. Even if you get it wrong, just go to the polls and do what you think is right. Things were so much simpler where I come from. There's only one big giant office, and whoever outruns the fireball wins. how many of you can relate to, uh, to that video as we get ready for Tuesday, but hey, I, I just want to, uh, a little poll question, see if anybody knows this right. I had, actually, Scott helped me to find the answer to this. Does anybody know uh, who was running for president when that episode aired on television? Can anybody guess? It's not the current election. Anybody guess? Nope. Nope. It was... It, it was Bob Dole and Bill Clinton, 1996, that was the election. Now, here's what I find so, so interesting about that, is that every election cycle, you can find media reports and pundits who say it's the worst it's ever been. Every single time. You can always find the people who say it's, it's worse than it's ever been. But here's, here's what I want you to take from that video. If all you have left is complaining, you need to go vote on Tuesday. If that's how you feel. It's the way you preserve your right to, uh, to complain. There's something about that reality, though, that, that you could take a video from 1996 and you could play it today. And it's just as relevant and just as true today that speaks to, I think, a reality that is true inside of the human mind, the human psyche. That is inside of us and inside of humanity, there is a genetic memory for this, this grasp for a once and future king. A once king, a king who, who used to be, who under that king's reign, there was peace, there was prosperity, there was, good, there was righteousness and justice. One time, at some point in the past, that existed. And the hope that maybe someday in the future, there will be a king who will return, a king who will come, who will bring prosperity and wealth and justice and peace. But the only time we don't feel like we have that king is in the present. In the present, we recognize all the shortcomings, we recognize all the flaws, but, but when we look back, history has a way of kind of scrubbing down and making things maybe better than they actually were. And, and looking into the future, we can kind of idealize everything for what we hope it will be. This genetic memory of this hope for a once and a future king even finds its way into our literature. Think about the stories that you grew up reading. Think about Robin Hood. The story of Robin Hood, you had good King Richard, 
Good King Richard used to reign. Good King Richard used to be in charge and there was peace and there was prosperity. But Good King Richard has gone away and now there's evil King John. But there's the hope that Good King Richard will return. How many Lord of the Ring fans do we have? Yeah, Lord of the Rings. So, so Lord of the Rings is based around this idea, this hope of a future king who will come and who will reestablish peace and justice and prosperity. The story of Camelot, all these stories have within them this idea of a once and a future king. But for all of us, we live in the present. We live right here in the reality of the world as we find it. So for the next few weeks, we're going to begin a new series that we're calling uh, Let Earth Receive Her King. Does anybody know what Christmas carol that comes from? Joy to the world. That's right. Yeah, that's, a, that's a line you sing when you sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Now, I, I think it's fascinating that every four years uh, in the United States, we go through an election process. And, and just shortly before the season of Advent starts, we're all up in arms about who we're going to elect as the next president of the United States. And, and it's always a crucial and it's always an important decision. But then we turn our attention as we get into the end of November and into December, we turn our attention towards something that we celebrate every year, which is the advent of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is not dependent on any earthly ruler, be they a monarch or be they a president, who's not dependent on any form of government, no matter what kind it may be, who's not dependent on any particular nation, who is in fact supreme over all nations and all forms of governments and all people who are in charge, however they acquire their position of power. And so for the next few weeks, I want us as a congregation to take a look at some stories from the Bible about kings, earthly kings. And I want us to ask ourselves the question, when we are seeking leaders, when we're looking for presidents, when we're looking for, for, through history at the kings who have reigned, what is it that we're really wanting? Because the reality is you will never find it in a political party. You will never find it in a candidate. You will never find it in any particular form of government or any particular nation. There is something deep inside of the human mind, inside of the human psyche, that longs for a king that we will never find in this present. But there is such a king. And the Bible, through all the stories of the kings who failed, for all the stories of the rulers who fell short, is pointing us to that king. And so I want us to take some time to look at that for the next several weeks. So I hope you'll come back. And just as a disclaimer, um, throughout the course of this, the first three sermons are already written, which means they were not, it had nothing to do with the out. So if you come next week and you think, oh, he only wrote that because he didn't like, or he did like who got elected, I've already written that sermon. So it doesn't even matter. You can come back and know I'm, 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 I'm being nonpartisan here when it comes to the current election. But I think it's got something really important to say to us And I don't want us to miss the opportunity that we have right now going on in public affairs and in government and in this election to really consider some deep theological truths and how it should shape us as believers and how it should shape us as the church. So if you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to open to Psalm chapter 2. We're going to begin in Psalm chapter 2. And as you're turning to look at Psalm uh, chapter 2, if you open your Bible right to the middle, that's usually where the book of Psalm is, and then you can turn to the left and you'll eventually come to the book of Psalm. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you, and if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that Bible as our gift to you today. Psalm chapter 2. Now, when we look at Psalm chapter 2, this psalm is a coronation psalm. 
What that basically means is it was probably written for the coronation of one of the kings of Israel, most likely King David. Um, But when you read it, what you find is that it describes a king that no earthly king could have ever fulfilled. It, It describes something that no earthly king could ever have been. So it's at once pointing to a historic event, a real historic king that did live and reign, but it's also pointing beyond itself to something that no earthly king could could fully comprehend. So I want us to look at this psalm. I want us to look about about three things about this psalm that I think has something to say to us in our own hearts. And then I want to talk about three things in particular that I think can relate to us as we face the upcoming election and just politics in general. So Psalm uh, chapter 2. And we're going to start with this, this first truth, and that, that is this, that we resist the king. We resist the king. Listen to what the psalmist says, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves as, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. And cast away their cords from us. So the psalmist is immediately talking about all the kings of the earth coming together. They're taking counsel together with all the rulers. And they basically have come to the point where they said, you know what? We don't like the fact that we live under the authority of God. So we are going to work together to overthrow, to see what we can do to sort of set ourselves away from God's authority and God's ultimate power. And if you look down at the very end there in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart. Now that little Hebrew word for bonds doesn't mean necessarily like chains or prison. It really means, the word is better translated, like a yoke. You see, these, these kings of the earth uh, weren't complaining because they were imprisoned or because they were in bondage or in captivity to God. They're complaining because God was their master. That, that ultimately there was a power, there was a source of authority that was higher than them. And don't we all resist authority? We all resist it. And if you're not resisting it now, you can look back in your life, maybe back to your teenage years, and there was something inside of you, something that springs up in you that just resists authority. It resists somebody being in charge of you. We find this throughout the Bible. You find it in the very first story of the Bible with Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve were given dominion. That means they were given authority, control over all the earth. There was one thing they weren't allowed to do. They were not allowed to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. That's the only thing. And guess what they did? They ate from the tree. And guess what you would have done? You would have eaten from the tree. Because there's something hardwired inside of us that just wants to know, why can't I do that? What is God holding out from me? Like, what is God trying to keep me from? from What pleasure, what enjoyment? And and so it's something hardwired inside of us that resists authority. The story of the Tower of Babel. If you read that in in Genesis chapter 11, you see the story of, of mankind deciding that we've got the technology. We can build a tower and we can work our way to heaven on our own. We don't need God. We can achieve heaven by ourselves. You've got the story of the kings of Israel from Chronicles and Kings and First and Second Samuel. You read story after story of these kings who come to power. They're humble, they're submissive to God, but the minute they achieve any sense of power themselves, they begin to try to get more power than is rightfully theirs. It's part of the human nature to resist authority. And one way we resist authority is we try to get authority for ourselves. 
So we think if I can just get enough authority, if I can just come to a position of authority all on my own, then somehow I can escape the yoke of anybody else ever being master over me. I can become my own master. There was a a great English pastor named George MacDonald who said this, the central conviction of hell is I am my own. That's the one thing George MacDonald says everybody in hell has in common. They all live with that conviction that I am my own. But listen, it's not just a reality in hell. It's a reality that creates hell in our world today, doesn't it? You have never had a relational problem with anybody that did not find its origin in this conviction. That I am my own. Every marriage problem finds its source in this conviction that I am my own. Every relationship problem between parents and children, every relationship problem in the office finds its origin in this conviction that I am my own. Some of you know the poem by heart by William Ernest Henley, uh, the Invictus, that I am master of my fate. I am captain of my soul. McDonald says that's the central conviction of hell. To believe that somehow you are the master of your fate, to believe that you are the captain of your own soul, that there is no authority higher than you. Do you know if you were to take a poll in the United States today, pollsters have done it many times, 95% of Americans say that they believe in God. But I think there's something flawed with that question. Because the question really is, which God do you believe in? Because 95% of Americans do not believe in a God who says, therefore, because I am holy, you also be holy. They don't believe in that God. They don't believe in a God who says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's not the God they believe in. They don't believe in a God who says, unless you love me more than you love your own father and mother and sister and brother, you cannot be my disciple. That's not the God they believe in. They don't believe in a God who says, I will have justice. That's not the God they choose to believe in. They would say, no, 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 no. I don't believe in that God. I believe in a God of love. I believe in a God of mercy and a God of grace. And God is all those things. But God is more than those things. That God is a God of justice. And when you're on the side of the victim, you want God to be a God of justice, don't you? I mean, whenever we feel victimized, that's the God we want in those moments. But in fact, you can't define the God you choose to believe in. God is And so when we think about the situation and the circumstances of the God of the Bible, we find that the God of the Bible puts a yoke on us. Just like the same yoke that these people in the Psalms, the kings in the Psalm, are trying to throw off. There is an obligation, there's an expectation that God says, be holy as I am holy. Walk, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with my God, take up your cross and follow me. There's a yoke that comes when we put ourselves under the authority of God and we resist that. That's hardwired inside of us, we resist it. But the second thing this psalm tells us is that we receive the king. Look with the next few verses in verse four through nine. We receive the king. He who sits in the heavens laughs, which I think is pretty good, like all the, all the efforts we take to sort of usurp his control, and God just kind of laughs at us. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. So what God is saying, as the kings are all conspiring to throw off the yoke of God's sovereignty, he is, he's in his throne laughing at them, revealing himself. Did you catch where? He's revealing himself on earth, that I will reveal my king on Mount Zion. Now, the, the word back in, uh, in, in verse, uh, verse 2, that against the Lord and against his anointed, that word anointed literally means the Messiah. The, the, the king that God is describing, that the psalmist is describing, is the hope of the Messiah who would come. And this idea that he would come on Mount Zion, that, that God would say, you are my son, today I have become your father. That Jesus Christ, the son of God, came to reveal to us the king that we're longing for. Let earth receive her king. This is the king that was to come. He is the king behind every other king. Every hope that we have for this once and future king is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. If you look at the record of human kings and you look at the record of human politicians, no matter which party you ascribe to, they have a pretty bad record, don't they? Yeah, they have a really bad record. Whether it has to do with human rights or whether it has to do with personal integrity or morality or justice, kings always seem to fall short. And the record of these kings All you have to do is look back through history and maybe not even back very far and you can see that they fall short. And in the absence of this perfect king, we tend to put ourselves on the throne because we look at the shortcomings of all the politicians and we think, well, if I were in charge, but that finds its origin at the very problem of the nature of mankind itself, that I am the master of my own soul. Christians throughout history have often been on the side of democracy for this very reason. That, that it, when you see democracy springing up around the world, you will, you, you will find a, a strong presence of the church in that place. C.S. Lewis said this about democracy. He said, democracy is medicine, not food. Democracy is medicine, not food. What did he mean by that? Well, you can't live off of medicine. That, that democracy may be what a society needs, in order to overcome the ills and the the ill effects of of bad monarchs and bad kings and bad rulers. But in fact, you can't live off democracy. Lewis went on to say that what you live off is the very word of God. That's what you need to sustain a society, what you need to sustain a culture. And no politician and no government will ever bring about the kind of justice and peace and righteousness that we all recognize. It doesn't matter what they promise you in campaign ads. They will try to tell you that they will solve every problem. They will try to tell you that the economy will never be better, that the sea levels will go down. They will try to tell you that crime will disappear and that peace and justice will reign on earth. You need to know that will never happen by the power and authority of any earthly politician. But there is a promised king who does deliver peace and justice. See, every longing for a king is only part of a genetic memory of humanity. It speaks to the deepest longing and needs of the human soul that we were created to submit to a true king. And in the absence of that king, we will find someone else to adore and someone else to worship. We will find someone to follow. We will look for a knight. We will look for a savior because it's hardwired into us. Now catch this. 
There is a sense of rebellion that's hardwired into us, and there is a need to submit to some higher authority hardwired inside of us. And so we're constantly in conflict between the two. But there is a king who would come. That's what the psalmist is talking about. It's what the prophet Isaiah talked about, a king who would rise up out of Israel, a familiar passage as we begin to to look towards Christmas from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Let's put it on the screen, and actually, let's just read it together. Let's read this together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the lord will do isn't that good That we receive this king that God has promised. The one that we've longed for. The one that we, somewhere inside of us, even if you don't know the story of the Bible, even if you've lived in a country where there has never been any message of the scripture, there is something deep inside of us that knows there is such a king. And that's the king that we're looking for. The very one that we resisted is the very one that God has delivered to us that we can receive. But finally, the the, the psalm says this, we rejoice in the king. We rejoice in the king. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, if you're just reading this, and maybe you don't read the Bible much, maybe you don't come to church much, you just read this, you think that is full of contradictions. You'd be right. It it absolutely is. Look at the tensions that's created here. There's rejoicing and there's trembling. There's kissing and there's anger. There's blessing and there's kindled fire. I mean, it's all right here in just a few verses. You see this tension that exists. Where does that tension come from? It comes from the very nature of our own souls. That we live in that tension between a desire to rebel against God's sovereignty and God's rule and a deep need inside of us to submit to God's sovereignty and God's rule. And that that tension exists around us. And nowhere do I think does it present itself more obvious in culture as a whole than when we come to elections. We feel it. Don't you feel it? Like, like there's something as you look around and you consider all the candidates, no matter how good or bad you may think they are, there's something that just falls short. There's something inside of you that said, well, if I could just design the candidate myself, come on. If I could design the candidate myself, then there would be a perfect candidate, which basically is setting yourself up as some high divine power and authority. Because somehow you have knowledge that exceeds the knowledge of other people and maybe even exceeds the knowledge of God himself who if we believe, and we're going to get to this in a few weeks, if we believe what the scripture says, no person comes to any position of power or authority without God allowing it to happen. I mean, come on. This tension exists. And maybe you're here today and you feel that tension, not just about politics, but you feel it about God. Like there's something inside of you that knows that you were designed for a greater purpose. There's something inside of you that recognizes and knows there must be a higher power. There must be a higher authority. But maybe you just don't know how to relate to God. 
Because there are things that you know that God would expect of you. A degree of righteousness, a degree of justice, a degree of holiness that you're not ready to submit to that. You still want to maintain the the dominion over your own soul and you want to be master of your own fate. And, And the problem with the God of the Bible is he doesn't allow us to do that. That, that he, he will either be the Lord over you or you, he will not be Lord at all. You, can, you cannot have it both ways. You can't choose him on some days, deny him on other days. You can't give part of your life over to him in one area and, and hold another part of your life back from him. That's not how God works. So now let me just share with you three ideas as we kind of bring this to a close and, and launch this series. And I hope you'll come back week after week. Maybe invite a friend to come back with you as we just explore these because these concepts are so big and they're really throughout the entire Bible. And I hope you'll come back and join us as we continue through the series. But let me just share with you a couple ideas. The first one is this. You will be subject to your rightful king or to every imposter who comes along. You will be subject to the rightful king or you will find yourself being subject to every imposter, whether it's a politician, whether it's a political system, whether it's an addiction, whether it's your own pride, your own greed, your own lust. See, our desire to be ruled by no one, that rebellious side of us, creates a vacuum in which we will be ruled by anyone. Some of you are here today and if you were really honest, and it was just you all by yourself, and, and you could be honest with yourself, you know there's something, and it's not your rightful king that's the master over you. Maybe it's debt. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography. Maybe it's an addiction to drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's a need for control. And so you find yourself trying to manipulate and control situations And what's true about you is that in your effort to manipulate and control situations, you are controlled by the desire to control. And you can't let go of it. Because you will either be subject to your rightful king or you will be subject to every imposter who comes along. Our desire for pleasure, our desire... For, uh, for, for power, our desire for, for self-centeredness. All these things that are deep inside of us will enslave us. They will put bonds upon us. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my, here's our word. Remember our word from the Old Testament? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the very yoke that the kings of the earth wanted to throw off, Jesus says that's the very yoke that will bring you rest for your souls. That is making yourself subject to your rightful king. And if you do not take that yoke upon you, you will be imprisoned and in bondage to lesser kings who will come along. You will be subject to your rightful king or to every imposter who would come down the path. The second thing is this. Jesus, this is so important. Jesus does not stand with the rulers of this world. He stands over them. Now listen to me. Listen, listen. If you don't take anything else with you for the next couple days, and as you face the election on Tuesday, please remember this. Write this down. Take a screenshot of it. Do something and remember 
Jesus, no matter what any politician tells you, no matter what any political party tells you, Jesus does not stand with the rulers of this world. He stands over them. There is no politician, no political party, no nation or political system that can claim to have God on their side. The gospel of Jesus Christ cuts across political platforms and all the dividing lines between conservatives and Republicans, liberals, Democrats, it just shreds that entirely. As subjects of the king of heaven, our question on any issue should not be, what is my preferred party's position or my preferred candidate's position? See, compassion for the oppressed and the marginalized is not a liberal or a democratic idea. It's a biblical idea. And the Republicans and the conservatives did not come up with the idea of the sanctity of all life, born and unborn. That's a biblical truth. And to the extent that political parties and politicians agree with the Bible, they stand with God. It is not God who stands with them. And the sooner that we begin to understand that, and the sooner we can separate out politics from the word of God and what God would, what God would expect of us as his followers, the quicker we will begin to see the world for, as it really is. This is really, really important. See, to the extent that our parties and our politicians value the things that the Bible values, to the extent that they align themselves with the teachings of Jesus Christ, great. That is great. That should be celebrated. We should recognize that. But no one of them have a monopoly on that. No politician in history has ever had a monopoly on that. When Abraham Lincoln was asked shortly after the Civil War whether he believed God was on the side of the Union during the Civil War, here's what he said. Sir... My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Maybe we should write his name in as a write-in candidate. You see, here's what you should know. As you you hear the ads, as you watch, just, just step back And view them through the lens of what you believe to be true about the Bible and about the teachings of Jesus first and foremost. Before you view them as a Republican, before you view them as a Democrat, a liberal, a conservative, see them through the lens of the teachings of Jesus first and ask yourself how much they align. Because Jesus does not stand with any politician. Although there are politicians who may choose to stand with Jesus, and we're thankful when they do. Third thing, as Christians... We must be more committed to the kingdom of our Lord than to any kingdom of this world. See, no matter how good or noble the kingdoms of this world may be, our allegiance must be to the, to the kingdom, to his kingdom first. That's why Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. See, we're called to seek the kingdom of God before we seek our own kingdom of any kind. Whether it's a nation, whether it's your own business, whether it's your own home, whatever it is, Jesus said, if you will put my kingdom first, all those other things will fall into their right place. I I, I don't have anything against Christians who are politically active. I'm grateful that there are Christians who engage in the political system, who advocate for positions and and advocate for candidates who hold those positions up. But, But listen to the danger. Please listen to this. Because I think this is part of the problem that we're having in the United States and maybe even broader than that around the world when it comes to the polarization. Have you noticed it? The polarization of our country 
is very, very dangerous. And it's very, very dangerous for those of us who call ourselves Christians who say that we place the kingdom first. See, politically active Christians may succeed or they may fail at electing their preferred candidate. But what is absolutely certain is that in advocating for that candidate, they alienate half of their potential mission field. Listen to me now. Just be very careful. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying you shouldn't have political opinions. I'm just saying know this, that as you advocate for a candidate, as you advocate for a position, you may be subjecting your belief about the message and the hope of the gospel for all people to second place. You see, by wrapping the cross in the flag or worse yet, by wrapping it in the standard of a political party, we are communicating to the world that in order to be a Christian, come on, in order to be a Christian, you better first be an American. And and worse than that, we're saying, and if you want to be a good Christian, you better be a member of the right political party. Come on. It is dangerous. And it is putting the message of the gospel second place to our political views. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that you shouldn't have opinions. I am telling you, vote, study issues. I'm even telling you to advocate. But remember that the person that you may be debating is loved by God. And it is God's greatest desire that that person would come to know his love. And if your politics move that person further away from the gospel, you are wrong, no matter how right you might be about a political issue. Come on. See, this is not to say that, that, that I don't value or, or, or cherish uh, or love my country, that I don't have political opinions. I've got political, I'm a news junkie if you don't know that about me. I'm a political junkie. I love history. I love presidential politics. I love it. But it is to say It is to say this, that I love my country enough to understand that our priority must first be an allegiance to Jesus Christ and his kingdom, followed by our allegiance to the country he has given for the cause of freedom around the world. To reverse those priorities is to fail in our true allegiance to both. And I believe that what Abraham Lincoln meant in the Gettysburg Address when he called America to be one nation under God. That includes your politics, whatever your positions may be. You see, here's, here's, here's the thing. This, is, this kind of summarizes this idea. And I know some of you are already mad. That's okay. I've made, I've made you mad enough. It's, it's okay. But, but listen to this. You see, I, I believe that it's the church house, not the white house, that will make a difference in this country. And the sooner Christians begin to wake up and realize that your investment in the kingdom of God through the local church has greater power to change culture and change people's lives than what you do in a voting booth, the better off our churches will be and the better off our nation will be. See, I believe it's the church of Jesus Christ and not a politician or a political party that's the hope of America. And I believe that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ and not America that is the hope of the world. And we need to remember that as people who put the kingdom first. Listen, and we'll close with this. This is Pastor Greg Boyd asked this question. It's a great question. What is the distinctive kingdom question? 
As, as believers, as we face an election coming up, what is the distinctive kingdom question? Well, the distinctive kingdom question is not, how should we vote? That's not it. Now, that is, is, I'm not saying it's not important, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But that is not the distinctive kingdom question. The distinctive kingdom question is this. How should we live? How should we live? Are you living out the values you expect your politicians to have? Are are you living to the same standard of morality that you expect them to have? Come on, guys. How many of you you are respectful of women? It's a big issue, right? Everybody thinks that's a a criteria. How respectful are you of women? Uh, Ladies, ladies, come on. How, How honest are you all the time? How transparent are you? I mean, these are expectations that we have of these two candidates, but the question is, do we have those expectations of ourselves? As Christians, the most important question isn't how we'll, how we'll vote, it's how you'll live. It's how you'll walk out of here and how you will carry the message of the gospel out. You have the potential to make an incredible difference in this community and in the people whose lives you intersect with, a ripple effect that can wash across this nation and bring about revival. There is no presidential candidate who will do that, but you sitting in this room can make that happen as you put the kingdom of heaven First, as you put God's kingdom above all other kingdoms, and as you place Jesus center, square on the throne of your life. I'm going to ask you to bow and pray with me, and we're going to have the band come up. We're going to sing a song of commitment this morning. And here's what I want us to do today as we wrap this up. For some of you who are here today, your your understanding, uh, you can't get past the politics of what I said. Like, you're so mad you didn't hear anything else I said. Okay? Come on, I've already made you mad, so I'm going to make you madder. If that is you today, you need to read Psalm 2 very, very carefully. Because that attitude inside your heart is the attitude that the psalmist was talking about in verses 1 through 3. That's you right now. And I'm telling you, if you want to subject, if you want to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to deal with that attitude. And it's not an attitude about me. It's not an attitude with me. Your issue isn't with me. Your issue is with God and with God's word. And I'm going to tell you, if you're here today and that's your attitude, I can guarantee you something I know about you. You are a Christian. You are a Christian and you feel that way. And you need to check who sits on the throne of your life. For some of you here, you would say, I'm not a Christian. But you feel this incredible tension inside of you. This tension between someone who will be ruled by no one and someone who is desperate for a once and future king. Can I just offer to you what the psalmist offers to you? The only way that peace, you will ever find that peace, is when you recognize that when Jesus Christ sits on the throne of your heart, he will bring with him the peace, that he is the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. That his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And if you are looking for that peace this morning, I offer you, I beg you, come find yourself before the King of Kings the Lord Jesus, because if he is not on the throne of your life, you will be subject to every imposter who comes along. For others of you who are here today, and you're hearing what I'm saying, you need to know this. As a church, as believers, we are obligated, we are commanded by Scripture to pray for our leaders, to pray for our country. And I would beg you over the next few days to pray. Pray for the candidates, whether you like them or not, 
pray for them. And pray that God will teach you something about being submitted to authority based on the outcome of this election. Use this as a gut check for yourself to see where does my allegiance lie? Is my allegiance first and foremost to King Jesus or to some politician who I hope gets elected? We're going to do a time of invitation. I'm going to invite you to stand now as we sing this song together. Maybe you would come. Maybe there would be people who would come down here and just pray for the upcoming election, pray for our nation. Maybe you'd pray together. Maybe some of you would come today and you would say, I'm ready to surrender my heart and my life to the Lord Jesus Christ to make him king of my life and king over me. However it is that you respond, whether you stay where you are, where you are, whether you come down front, I just hope that you will not leave here today without considering the claims and the promises of Jesus who said, take my yoke upon you and you will find peace for your soul. Let's sing together. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to difficult times, elections that just seem to turn media and popular culture upside down, and and we can face it with the confidence and the peace of knowing that you are still on your throne and that on November 9th, you will still be King of kings and Lord of lords, and every nation will be subject to you as much then as they are now. Father, help us who are here today align our hearts in submission with you to take your yoke upon us and to find the peace that we need, especially during the time of upheaval in our culture. May we be ambassadors of that peace to an anxious country, to an anxious group of people who are around us. For we pray it in Jesus' name.